0: Thank you for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. Our current series is called Power and Weakness, a study in 2 Corinthians where we look at how we experience Jesus' power and grace in our weakness. We hope this message encourages and challenges you, and we would love to see you at one of our services at 5.30 on Saturday evenings or 9 and 10.30 on Sunday morning.
1: A reading from the book of 2 Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The word of the Lord.
0: Father, as we prepare now to hear your word, we ask that you'd grant by your Holy Spirit dwelling in us that reverence and humility without which no one will see you or understand your truth. We pray that your word from this book, this book that is a voice, your voice, would not only penetrate our hearts today and enlighten our minds, but that I, your word would come to reside in us. Lord, we are tired of trying to make life work on our own. We are tired of trying to come up with our own solutions in our own strength and get through these days. We need your voice We need your strength. Father, we're saying two things. One, we're desperate for you. We are absolutely desperate to have you speak to us today. And second, we're saying that you are our delight. You're the place where we find joy and hope and strength and promise and wisdom. We delight in you it's why we're here. We, we know a, a person's values are revealed by what they do with their free time. Father, we're here because we're desperate for you and we delight in you. So come. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know one thing for certain. One thing today. Into your life there's bound to come some trouble. And that trouble will bring some questions. Why is this happening to me or my loved ones? Who or what is behind it? How will I ever endure it? And the answers to those questions will come from your story. Not your personal story, but the story that you hold to be true that makes sense of life. The story that for you defines reality and makes sense of this world. Every one of us, no matter what your story is, Christian, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, you have a story that you believe. You've never lived one moment of your life without faith. And this story is supposed to hold life together for you, especially on the days of trouble. And I'm asking you, I guess, I guess the question, is your story strong enough? Because there's bound to come some trouble. You never know what a day will bring. And that reminds me of a story. There was a farmer in a poor village. He had a horse, so the village thought he was well-to-do. He used the horse for plowing and for transportation. One day, the horse ran away. And the village came around him and said, oh, that's terrible. And the farmer said, we'll see. A few days later, the horse came back and brought with it two wild horses. And the village gathered around the farmers and said, yay, that's awesome. And the farmer said, we'll see. And the next day, the farmer's son wanted to get on and ride one of the wild horses. And the horse threw him and he broke his leg. And the village gathered around the farmer and said, "Uh, that's terrible, we're so sorry. And the farmer said, you're catching (laughs) up. And the next week, the conscription officers came and they were signing the young men of the village up for the war. And because the farmer's son had broken his leg, they didn't take him off to the war. And the villagers gathered around and said, how lucky you are. And the farmer said, you never know what a day will bring. That's how we live. But the question is, do you have a frame through which you look at every day, good or bad? A frame that captures even how you view suffering so that you can endure suffering. The Christian frame is this. None of us knows what a day will bring, but we believe there's coming the day. The day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns to make all things new, a new heavens and a new earth, that day is the frame through which we view every day, and that brings hope. Our mentor in this frame for looking at suffering is a guy who suffered, and he suffered hard, His name is Paul. We're reading one of his letters. We're going through it chapter by chapter. And today we come to an interesting chapter uh, in chapter 4. But first, I just think it's important we know the mentor a little bit. So let's read one of the lists that he gives for how he experienced hardship. It's in chapter 11. We'll jump ahead for a little bit. But Paul writes... Are they servants of Christ? And he's, he's writing here about these, uh, what he calls super apostles who think they're the real apostles and that Paul is a false apostle. Are they servants of Christ? Uh, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. Uh, I am more. I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food, and I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily pressure from my concerns for all the churches." Is he qualified to be a mentor in hardship? What's interesting though, this is bad for Paul, this is worse, the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Because you see, there's some in the church of Corinth who say, Paul, you cannot be a true apostle. Why? For the exact reasons you've just listed. God would never allow that to happen to any of his followers. I mean, there were those, I'm sure, saying, yeah, I've sailed the Mediterranean my whole life, I've never once been shipwrecked. What's wrong with you? The very reasons that Paul gives that kind of credentialed him to be an apostle. The Corinthians are saying those are the exact things that disqualify you from being an apostle. So Paul writes this letter, we're reading through 2 Corinthians, to not only share his credentials for being a true apostle, but even more, and for our benefit, to give us a way to view suffering, a perspective we need. Are you ready? Let's talk about suffering today. He begins in verse seven. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this is all surpassing power is from God and not From us. When it comes to suffering, Paul wants us to know what we have and what we can never lose in spite of what happens to us. Treasure. Now, I think it's interesting. He says, We, and he's not just talking about we, Paul, and his associates who are with him while he writes this letter. He's talking about anyone who bears the name of Jesus Christ. He says, We have this treasure. What's treasure? Something so valuable, invaluable. And in this context, he's referring to the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the story of Jesus, his life, his death his resurrection, that's the gospel. He's not though only talking about the message of the gospel, he's talking about the power that comes through the message. When you believe that story, when you receive it and follow Jesus, the power of the gospel comes into your life and what's that power? That power is described for us in verse six in the immediate context, the verse before, let the light shine out of darkness that God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus. Now that's an eloquent way to say the gospel. God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. What's that mean? It means that God wanted to come so close to us that he sent his only son putting on a human face so that in Christ we can know God and God can turn his face to shine on us. The ancient Latin fathers had an expression for this. They called it Coram Deo. Coram Deo means that because we're so close to God through the gospel, believing this story, we come so close that God's presence is everywhere in our lives. Not as an imposition, but as an invitation to live our lives joyfully and creatively under the gaze and regard of a loving father. God wants to come that close that he lives with us. I was reminded this last weekend I was visiting my parents and um, the the joy of the visit was meeting the newest member of our clan. His name's Nolan. He's my great nephew. I am of course a great uncle. And uh, he's three weeks old three weeks old, I'd forgotten what it's like to hold a baby. First of all, huge respect to all moms and dads out there who are holding babies. I mean, I held them for hours, stretches at a time, and my elbow literally froze up. I could not unbend it after that. I just, I'm amazed at what moms and dads go through with little ones. Uh, But Ben, his dad, my nephew, was saying, and Ben's this way, he researches everything, and he said, at three weeks old, His line of sight, his vision uh, 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 circumference is 14 inches. He can only see and make sense of things 14 inches away at this point in his life. So I made sure that my face was within 14 inches because I want him to know Uncle Larry. That's what God did in sending his own son with a human face as a baby. He wants us to be 14 inches away from him, so that we can know God. That's the treasure. God wants to be that close to us. Can you believe it? Can you imagine it? He wants a 14-inch relationship with us all the time. That's the treasure. Believe that story. You get close to God. But notice, Paul sets up this contrast, this irony, he puts the treasure in what? Jars of clay. Now, there's two things that we know about jars of clay in the ancient world. One, they were everywhere. Everyone, poor, free, slave, uh, uh, rich, everyone had jars of clay. It was the way you drank, it was the way you washed, it was the way you stored things. Everyone had a jar of clay. Why? Because they were cheap. You could make them yourself. They were accessible. So they were ordinary and common. Everyone had them, but they were also very fragile. You broke it, it's done. Ordinary and broken. So the contrast, are you you sensing it? God puts this most invaluable treasure, so valuable, in something so ordinary. Why? Two reasons. Paul goes on. He says the first reason is because he wants to display his treasure in jars of clay so that his treasure can be displayed in us. The end of verse 7, if we go back to verse 7, Tara, just for a second, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us what? That this all-surpassing power is from God. And not from us. God puts something so valuable and something so ordinary so that we will never confuse the message with the messenger, so that we will praise Jesus and not a jar, so that we will praise God and not a platter. Imagine it's this way you wanna have special guests over, people you highly respect and want to impress. So you decide you're gonna pull out the family recipe, chicken cachetory and you work all day on that dish. You get the sauce just right, you get the chicken seasoned and juiced just right, and you get the table set beautifully, and you have your white wine, and at the right moment, after everyone's had the hors d'oeuvres, you put that chicken cacciatore on the table. And what would you feel if, uh, when it's placed on the table, the responses around the table went like this? My oh my, that's a beautiful platter. And someone else says, how old is that platter? And someone else says, where did you get that platter? And someone else says, I just love how the gold edging around the rim of that platter, it just fills my heart. What would you do? You'd rip that chicken cacciatore right back off that table, and you'd go get a tinfoil plan and put it down in there and say, chicken cacciatore. (laughs) God puts his treasure, his treasure in clay pots, so that we will never confuse the treasure with the pot. I mean, the greatest example is the Apostle Paul. Do you know that we have an early physical description of the Apostle Paul, probably within 100 years of his life from a Syrian text? It describes him this way, and I love this because this could be me. A man of middling size, and his hair was scanty, and his legs were a little crooked and his knees were far apart, and he had large eyes and his eyebrows met and his nose was somewhat long. <laughs> it actually syncs up well with how Paul describes himself in, later in, in 10.10 when we get to chapter 10 of Second Corinthians, when he says that um, my, my letters, they are weighty and, and forceful, but in person I am unimpressive. And he says, my speech usually comes to nothing. Now, treasure and jars of clay. I mean, the Apostle Paul, think through this with me. Think about his letters. He wrote most of his letters from a jail cell. And billions, I would argue that the Apostle Paul is the most read human author in history. Which means, I mean, not only did he turn an empire upside down, he's turning the world upside down as we speak. And yet... He's a man who was nearsighted, bald-headed, bow-legged, with an unbroken eyebrow lying across his forehead like a dead caterpillar who couldn't preach his way out of a paper bag. We will not confuse the treasure with the pot. The only explanation is what? God did this. God did this. And I guess if you're coming in this morning, you're seeking Jesus and wondering what Christianity is all about, that's something you have to make up your mind about. This Bible and these letters and things like the Apostle Paul, whose letters have been read by the most people in the history of the world. What's that about? You have to decide. Paul goes on to say in verses eight and nine, he's gonna go on and give us now in order that the treasure will never be confused with the pot, he's gonna give us the credentials for the pot. What does it mean to be a jar of clay? First he starts with a job description. <laughs> here's, here's what a jar, a jar of clay does. We are hard pressed on every side, we are but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. So what does it mean to be a jar of clay? It means you're pressed. you're you're perplexed, you're persecuted, and you're pummeled. Uh, Imagine if you were making a resume like that, and here's how it would read. Yeah, uh, I want this job, what you need to know about me is that every time I seem to bring Jesus into a conversation, people leave the room or wanna throw something at me. what it means is that you know, I can only stay for a city for so long before people find out that I'm here and I either have to escape under cover of darkness or they pick up stones and run me out of the city. Um, the other thing you need to know about me is you know, I, I start churches and they just take off, but even some people in those churches don't really care for me. Can I have this job, please, please, please? Paul says, The credentials for this job are not your strengths or your successes. The credentials for this job, what job? Carrying the treasure, are more about your pressures, your perplexions, your persecutions, and your pummelings. Those are the jars of clay. He presses it further in verses 10 through 12 when he writes, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are, listen, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That phrase, given over, we've seen that before. It was used when Jesus was given over to being flogged. When Jesus was given over to being crucified. What Paul is saying is in the same way that Jesus was given over to suffering so that he could save the world, we too are being asked, and being given over to suffering as God allows so that we might display the treasure. He goes on to say, so then death is at work in us. And I think it's a metaphor here. And what he's saying is that when you decide to follow Jesus, And by the way, if you are visiting Waterstone, you're looking for a church, this will tell you what kind of church we are. This will tell you what we believe the gospel message is. We do not preach a gospel that says, once you follow Jesus, your life will be perfect, blessed, you'll get healthy, happy, and wealthy. If you're looking for that, you've come to the wrong church. That's not to denigrate any other church. I just want to be clear that we preach What Paul's preaching. And he's saying that when you follow Jesus, you become more vulnerable to hostility and heartbreak. Why? Because you carry around the death of Christ. What does that mean? It's a metaphor, and what it means is that when you decide to follow Jesus, you experience a certain kind of death in areas of your life. For instance, When you decide to follow Jesus, you get a new heart, and part of that heart is you become very burdened for the poor, the immigrant, the the widow, the orphan. You become burdened for those things, and so what do you do? You start giving your money away. What's that? That's an economic death, let's face it. You're living on less to give more where it's needed. You're living on less to honor God's intentions in this world and to be part of his kingdom. You choose to sacrifice economically Let's say it. You choose to die a little bit in your wallet, in order to follow Christ and kingdom. You know what else? Where else you die? Every time, and you, I'm sure you're like me. You have these discussions. I was sitting on an airplane on the way home from my visiting my parents, and had this conversation with a person. And and I, you know, for a pastor, sometimes it's a little easier because you get that person, a friendly person. They ask, "What do you do?" They said, "I'm a pastor." And boom, I mean, there's, you've probably had this too, right? You have a moment where you decide, okay, am I going to mention Jesus or not? Do you have that moment? Say yes if you do. You know, right, what's that hesitation about? That hesitation is about you are putting that relationship, even if it just started 30 seconds ago, at risk because you don't know how they're gonna to respond to Jesus and, how, and your passion for Jesus. So what's that? That's a social death. There's death economically, there's death socially. Every time you bring Jesus into a conversation, you're putting that relationship in tension. There's also career death. You carry around the death of Jesus career-wise. Because why? Well, in your career as a believer, you're gonna operate with honesty with integrity, by telling the truth, not fudging. You're you're gonna be transparent. You're actually gonna make decisions that get you to more important places than work at times. What's that called? Career death. You're making choices that impact your work. That's what means by the death is at work in us. We're choosing to display The gospel. So, this is a hard word for the American church. We who lift up success and strength and wealth and happiness, but knowing that Paul says, wait, to be a jar of clay, it's much more about giving over to death for Jesus' sake, and death is at work in us and it puts us in tension. But we remember that Jesus has put his treasure in jars of clay. Why? In order to display in us the beauty of the treasure. That's the first reason. The second reason goes like this. God puts his treasure in jars of clay in order to dispense his life-giving power through us. So display in us dispense through us to others. It's in verses 13 to 15. We'll just jump to verse 15. All this is for your benefit. All this stuff, these hardships, Paul is experiencing for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Paul's point is this. I am going through all of this in a form of radical love. Why? To benefit you so that that treasure can come through me for your good. Wow. That's why God puts treasure in jars of clay. So that it can come through us to others in radical, radical love. Now, it's not only apostles that do this. It's not only pastors that do this. It's everyone. When lawyers and doctors and teachers and business leaders and, 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 and anyone, uh, you know, at Waterstone we like to say everyone's in full-time ministry. And we believe that. Unless it's illegal, everyone is in full-time ministry, and your calling on that ministry is to dispense the treasure through your jar of clay. You—that's what we do. And in that dispensing, the power and weakness. I've been trying to wrestle. What's a? In one way, stay with me. It's like an acorn, right? You ever considered an acorn? What's in an acorn? A tree. Power. If you think about it, what's in an acorn? Lots of trees. A country of trees left to themselves to grow. There's so much power in an acorn. But what has to happen to an acorn for that power to be unleashed? It has to die. It has to be put into the ground. The power released in weakness. Jesus said, unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. It's what Paul is saying, this dispensing of the treasure, it's radical, it's giving ourselves for the benefit of others all the time. As Bonhoeffer said, Jesus was the man for others, so his followers are always for others. Others, we live other-centered lives. Radical love. That's been best described by C.S. Lewis. B- those of you who are visiting Waterstone, you know I've had a full week by the number of C.S. Lewis quotes uh, that we put into the slide mix. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. Wow. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. (laughs) But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And we make that choice of that treasure in us, whether we're radically going to give it away to other people in sacrificial service and courageous words. We make that choice daily, to love. Reynolds Price, for years, taught English at Duke. He contracted cancer as an adult, a tumor on his spine, and as a result of the surgery, he became a paraplegic. He's in heaven now, but this experience led him to Christ. One time, a medical student, a young medical student from Duke, wrote to Reynolds Price and asked him, because of all the suffering you've experienced and all the suffering that's going on around us, how in the world can you believe God exists? And as was Reynolds Price's way, he didn't just write back a letter to the medical student. He wrote his next book. It's called Letter to a Man in the Fire. And here's what he wrote. The most nearly honest and hopeful guess I can make is that if you survive this ordeal in working condition, you're almost certain to be a, Uh, I don't think I mentioned the young medical student had terminal cancer. If you survive this ordeal in working condition, you're almost certain to be a far more valuable doctor and person than you'd otherwise have been. Poets more ancient than Eshlas, have hymned that awful paradox that humankind can apparently only advance through suffering. But no one has cut that paradox in deeper letters than Eshlas. It is God's law that he who learns must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart and in our own despite, against our will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. God has this treasure, the life of God in the face of Christ. This story that we believe brings power in life, and he puts it into ordinary vessels so that we can display it, and Jesus will, people will praise Jesus instead of the jar, and so that we can dispense it through radical, sacrificial Love so. Paul summarizes as we summarize verses sixteen to eighteen. What do we do? Well, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Present tense, wasting away. What he means is that our life, as we know it, is already moving past us, moving beyond us. It's wasting away. Uh, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I often just... At Waterstone, we, we want to pump you up, but... Um, <laughs> what you really need to know this morning is that your heart does not run on electricity. Your heart is a wind-up clock with a certain number of beats, and you'll have one final one. You're on the way. You don't know what a day will bring. And... Uh, I'm sorry, your attractiveness is wasting away. (laughs) Even though you live in Colorado. (laughs) Your family is wasting away. Time, growth, distance, death. Your friends are wasting away. Time, growth, distance, death. Your skills, and I know all of you in this room are at the top of your game. Your skills are wasting away. Everything that we set our heart on, that desire, it's like a wave of the sea, right? It comes in, we get it, we finally get it, and we think, oh, yes, I've got what, what I've always wanted. As soon as you get it, the wave's going out. So what do we do? Don't lose hope. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. You gotta be kidding me, what? Here's the Christian hope. This is, this is crazy, right? We're saying that those troubles, those things you're losing, those struggles we have, they're bound to come, are producing even more glory? How does that work? There's a professor at Yale, Marilyn McCord Adams, she died of cancer as well and is with the Lord. But her, she's a history professor, and her area of research was the women of the Middle Ages who were spiritual mystics. People like Hildegard of Bingen. People like Julian of Norwich, by the way, who my wife reads. Julian of Norwich. Check her out. What she discovered, Marilyn McCord Adams, was that in reading these mystics, these women mystics, Christians, who in the Middle Ages, surrounded by their culture, they taught Marilyn McCord Adams, and anyone who reads her research, the Christian frame for suffering. Which was what? This. Around these women were other frames that people used to, uh, to view suffering. One of which would be the um, uh, Stoics. Have you heard of the Stoics? When you suffer, keep a stiff upper lip. Don't let anyone see you cry, Put one foot in front of the other, keep going. Stoics, they accept suffering. There was another group in her culture, and in our culture, called the Epicureans. You may have heard of them. What's their view? Avoid suffering at all costs. Substances, screens, whatever can get your mind so you don't have to think, so you don't have to process any kind of negativity. Avoid suffering by any means necessary. So you have your Stoics, you have your Epicureans, you have finally your masochists. Bring it on. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. If I get knocked down, I'm getting right back up. Embrace suffering. When I feel pain, I feel alive at least. Marilyn McCord Adams, by reading The Mystics, said, wait, there's another option here. The gospel says that we don't need to accept suffering. We don't need to avoid suffering. We don't need to embrace suffering. What the gospel does, it engulfs suffering. Engulfs it. What's that mean? Hope. You never know what a day will bring, but we believe what the day will bring. All things new. A new heavens and a new earth. That means that nothing that happens to you here, hard as it may be, is the last word. What's that mean? I'm trying to think about it, when I was visiting my dad and mom, this my dad has had Parkinson's for ten years, and it's really gaining on him. And uh, one of the side effects of Parkinson's for him has been these terrible, terrible nightmares and dreams. My dad, a very gentle and quiet man, several times in the middle of the night will just be screaming his head off at someone or something. The, something terrible is happening, and my dad's screaming. Uh, so, so a while back this has been going on for several years, a while back, I asked him, "Dad, Dad, what, what are these dreams like?" And how do you, how do you handle these dreams?" <laughs> My dad. He says, "Well, the good thing is, I don't remember most of them." And I'm thinking, "You don't I mean, you are screaming at the top of your lungs." So that's the good thing. And then he says, "But some of them I do remember when I sit down to breakfast at the next morning. It's the best meal of the day because I realized that none of this ever happened. That is the Christian hope that even the nightmares of this current existence will only deepen the joy of the next. That is the hope of the Christian world that the new heavens and the new earth will make anything we suffer here pale by what we have coming to us. That is our hope, that even the evil of this present time, and we don't deny it, its evil, we, even the evil though will become a slave to joy. As Tolkien put it, everything sad will come untrue. So, fix your eyes on what is not what is seen, but what is unseen. Think about the glory that awaits you and stay there until the sense of that glory pulverizes your discouragement. That's how we view suffering. So, let's pray at home, shall we? We're going to pray the end, into the present. Revelation 21, because I'm asking you to pray, it won't be on the screens. You can just envision this. If you're here and you know Jesus and you've walked with Jesus, here's what he wants you to fixate on today and this week. To pulverize your discouragement. If you don't know Jesus this morning, and as we read this, you decide that you want this to invade your present now, all you need to do is say, Jesus, I want this. Give me this. You say it, he's on your neck, hugging and kissing you, and you walk out of here not only a changed person, but full of hope. So let's pray. Then he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen.